About a month ago, in the early days of January, as the NFL playoffs were getting into full swing, my dad and I got some breakfast. As we sat and ate, we discussed the teams that were in the playoffs this year, and as we were talking, my father brought up something I had never heard of before, the original stadium in Tampa called the Big Sombrero. He told me all the things that had occurred in Super Bowl 25, 30 years earlier, in the Big Sombrero. This episode is pretty much everything that he told me at that breakfast. Most episodes of this show come from something I discovered in my research, and occasionally I get a recommendation from a listener, but this one came from my dad. And that story begins with one song, the National Anthem. It's hard to imagine a better rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner than the one you are about to hear. It was recorded in 1991, and it was so popular at that time that it was released as a single, and it peaked at 20 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was given airplay again following the attacks on the Twin Towers in 2001, after which it again went to the Billboard Hot 100, peaking then at number 6, and then it went platinum. It was a smash sensation, a surprise hit, and perhaps the definitive performance of this song. Folks, this is Whitney Houston. Whitney is only 27 years old here, her staggering voice just completely blowing the crowds away. She was in the height of her career, with hit after hit skyrocketing her to stardom. Whitney was asked to perform this rendition of the Star Spangled Banner for a very important occasion, the Super Bowl. And it wasn't just any Super Bowl, it was Super Bowl 25, a special anniversary so naturally everyone was pulling out all the stops to put on the best show possible. And frankly, the country needed a pick-me-up. The whole game was surrounded by an obvious tension that people were hoping football would help them forget about. America had been at war for a few weeks now, a decision made by President George H.W. Bush, and Americans were glued to their TVs every day, waiting for more news. It started in late summer of 1990. Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq at the time, had led an invasion into the nation of Kuwait, Iraq's neighboring country. That was August. Soon after, other nations in the region were struggling to handle the violence, so they called upon assistance from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, including the United States. Within a week, coalition forces had arrived in Saudi Arabia and were preparing to launch Operation Desert Shield, the first of two major offensives in what would become known as the Persian Gulf War. On January 17, 1991, the war began when a huge air attack led by the U.S. struck at Iraq's military, communications, and defensive holdings. Despite the success in this region of combat, ground fighting continued along the borders of Kuwait and Iraq, and ten days after that first strike against the Iraqi forces, the Buffalo Bills were slated to play against the New York Giants for the NFL championship title. The whole world was terrified, afraid that something may happen on American soil. This game was where all America's attention would be. What if something horrible were to happen? What if they had to cancel the game? What if people got hurt? Tensions ran high as the days approached, but those working behind the scenes did not stop preparing to put on the best show they could. Ricky Minor, the famous music producer, had been working to create an excellent performance of the national anthem, 
A recording of an orchestra was created, which we'll come back to in a moment. The taping of the backing track was brought by Ricky Minor to Los Angeles, where Whitney Houston lived. There, she recorded her vocal track. It's somewhat controversial that Whitney recorded her vocals before, but that doesn't change the fact. She puts it all on the table. She changes the song forever. The track had been slowed down in its rhythm, giving Whitney time to breathe, time to build, and time to dominate the song. The executives at the NFL were concerned the song would not sound very good, but Whitney's team insisted. This is her rendition, and it will work. Everything was in place now, and even though fears around the country were at peak, the game went on, and Whitney flew from Los Angeles across the country to the location of Super Bowl XXV, the Tampa Stadium, also known as the Big Sombrero. If you haven't watched this performance in your life, pause the podcast and go watch it. Whitney is a force to be reckoned with whenever she gets on stage, but this is something else. She blows it out of the water, and those backing tracks that you hear behind her, those were created by the one and only Florida Orchestra, led by the groundbreaking conductor Zsa Zsa Ling. This performance was such a sensation that it was released as a single, with all the proceeds going to the American Red Cross Gulf Crisis Fund. It was almost immediately a definitive classic, an incomparable performance that stands the test of time. But that was not the only history made that night. Whitney's song at the Big Sombrero, right here in Tampa, Florida, was just the beginning. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week with the Super Bowl in Tampa just last Sunday, the story of the Big Sombrero, the origins of football in Tampa, and one of the most famous endings to a Super Bowl ever. Tampa Bay sports have certainly come into the spotlight in the last few years. The Tampa Bay Lightning have been a major contender in professional hockey for the last several years, winning the Stanley Cup for the second time just this past season. The Tampa Bay Rays have had a steady team on their roster and made it all the way to the World Series last season only to lose to the Los Angeles Dodgers. To top it all off, Tom Brady, one of the winningest quarterbacks in football history, made a big move to join the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And then they won the Super Bowl. Last week, their second time ever. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers this year are the first team in NFL history to play the Super Bowl in their home stadium. I don't know how that's never happened before, but it happened this year, thanks to the Bucs. Tampa Bay is now a legitimate sports town, with three major league sports teams that are on everyone's lips nationwide. Professional sports have had a very long relationship with Tampa in general, beginning with Henry Plant back near the turn of the century. We've discussed this before, but Tampa has long been a home of spring training baseball. With Plant Field on the grounds of the Tampa Bay Hotel, the city was able to start hosting Major League Baseball spring training as far back as 1913 with the arrival of the Chicago Cubs. Despite this, it took decades until an actual professional baseball team permanently came to the city in 1995 with the Rays. 
The Lightning were formed a few years earlier in 1992, but the Buccaneers came about 16 years before that, in 1976, after much work by the city to get an actual professional football team in town. A lot had been done to even start that conversation, and much of that started with the idea of a building. It was called the Tampa Stadium. As the city worked out the details of what this building would entail, they started hosting exhibition games with other football teams at smaller fields. It became clear that the city could, in fact, support a team if they wanted to, but the building was required. So they bought land. East of the airport, west of downtown, it was built on the land north of the current location of Raymond James Stadium, where the Bucks play today. When the original stadium was built, it had to deal with a classic Florida problem, the heat. You see, Tropicana Field, where the Rays play, is fully enclosed. No worries about the heat in there. It is a balmy 70 or so degrees. But the Tampa heat was a lot to take in, even in the autumn and winter months when football is played. Nevertheless, the Tampa Stadium opened in 1967, despite there not officially being a professional football team signed on to play. It was no matter, as the college teams immediately flocked to the stadium. The University of Tampa Spartans football team started playing that same year, and a soccer team, the Tampa Bay Rowdies, played there as well. But that's not why the stadium was built. They wanted football. Professional American football. They wanted to be part of this massively popular sport, to be a part of the national conversation, and they were ready to prove they could handle it. Tampa soon began inviting existing football teams to play at the Tampa Stadium. Starting in 1968, the stadium hosted 12 exhibition games, one every few months, with professional teams. Simply putting the stadium, and more importantly, the packed stands, in front of the eyes of NFL executives would start a legitimate conversation about whether or not they could handle a team in this city. It took years to finally cross the line, but Tampa kept plugging away. The NFL was expanding, adding new teams all the time, rebuilding stadiums for existing teams, and in 1973, Tampa joined the list of cities allowed a new team. By 1976, the Buccaneers were born. The name Buccaneers was chosen by the citizens of Tampa to honor, of course, the famous pirates that once plundered the city during the colonial era. When games started being televised from the stadium, famous ESPN commentator Chris Berman noticed something unusual in the design of the stadium. Renovations had been done to the stadium when it was announced the Bucks were coming, and they added seats and redesigned the upper edges of the bowl itself. It added a strange shape to the whole profile of the building, giving it a round, sloped shape that was much higher in points than others, but still maintained this curved outer line. Berman noted this odd shape and dubbed it the Big Sombrero. The name stuck. It had an official name, of course, but everybody seemed to call it the Big Sombrero. I mean, how could you not? By 1984, the NFL had decided that the Big Sombrero would be a perfect venue to host the biggest game of the year, the Super Bowl. The reigning champions, the Washington football team, back before they changed their name, were competing against the Los Angeles Raiders, who would go on to be the Oakland Raiders, but are now the Las Vegas Raiders. Advertising history was actually made during this game. During the third quarter, Apple aired a commercial for their Macintosh computer, a flashy and ominous ad that promised a brighter future. It was directed by Ridley Scott and was so eye-catching that some advertising experts believe that this ad, called fittingly 1984, fundamentally changed the way Super Bowl advertising worked. The Raiders would go on to blow out the reigning champions 38-9, a huge disappointment for Washington fans across the country. 
It would be another seven years until there was another Super Bowl in Tampa, but if Washington fans had been disappointed, wait until you hear what happened to the Buffalo Bills. Before we go any further, I must reveal my bias to you. As you may know, if you've heard one of my episodes about sport history before, you know that I have only devotion to Orlando teams when it comes to Florida sports. I'm always happy to see our other statewide teams succeed, especially the Lightning, but when it comes to football, I'm a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and more importantly for the purposes of this story, the Buffalo Bills. My father and grandmother are from Buffalo, lifelong fans of the Bills. The Bills were one of the four final teams in the playoffs this year, but were knocked out by the reigning champions, the Kansas City Chiefs. I was disappointed, but I let it go. It's alright. We will be back. If you don't know anything about football, you may not know this. The Bills hold an unfortunate and painful legacy. They went to the Super Bowl for four straight years in the 1990s and lost each and every time. Their first Super Bowl loss was in the 1990-1991 season in the final Super Bowl played in the Big Sombrero in Tampa. That was 30 years ago now, but it is vivid in the memories of Bills fans. But I will power through for you and for me. Let's meet your contenders for the 1991 Super Bowl 25, the Buffalo Bills and the New York Giants. The Giants went into this season under stressful circumstances. The year before, after a tough season, they made their way into the playoffs but lost in the first round to the Los Angeles Rams. They were led by perhaps their most famous quarterback, Phil Simms, who played with the team for 15 years, never playing for another team in his whole career. Phil Simms is now a commentator on CBS Sports, but you may know him from an even more iconic piece of sports culture. Sims, you've just won the Super Bowl. What are you doing next? I'm going to go to Disney World. He was the first quarterback who, when asked what he would be doing after winning the Super Bowl, said, I'm going to go to Disney World. That ad campaign started back in 1987 when then-Disney CEO Michael Eisner realized how simple of a slogan it was. He paid $75,000 to both quarterbacks in the Super Bowl, Sims with the Giants and John Elway with the Broncos, so that whoever won, they'd say the slogan that Eisner had paid them to say. It spread to other sports and championships and is said to this day by Super Bowl quarterbacks after the game is done. But Sims was not going to say it in 1991, no matter if the Giants won or not. You see, in one of the last games of the season, against the Bills, who they would play in the Super Bowl, Phil Sims broke his foot. In comes his backup, Jeff Hostetler, who would go on to win every game for the rest of the season. Then came the Super Bowl. The Bills that year were a force to be reckoned with. Led by Hall of Fame quarterback Jim Kelly and supported by an indomitable defense, the Bills had destroyed their competitors throughout the regular season and comfortably propelled themselves into the playoffs. Kelly himself was actually injured in the same game that took out Phil Simms, but Jim was able to get back on his feet and powered the Bills through the playoffs. They would beat their rivals, the Miami Dolphins, led by Dan Marino, in a close game in the first round, then absolutely destroyed the Los Angeles Raiders, 51-3 in the AFC Championship game. That is the biggest point differential in the history of the AFC Championship game. Needless to say, heading into the Super Bowl, the Bills were confident and the Giants were hoping their backup could handle the dynamic defense the Bills were bringing to Tampa. But 
Americans had other things on their minds. But what we know is this. About uh, 50 minutes ago, uh, American aircraft and perhaps American missiles, perhaps including the Tomahawk cruise missiles fired from the Persian Gulf, suddenly descended on Iraq and occupied Kuwait out of a very dark but very clear night sky. The war in the Persian Gulf has begun. What was known for so long as Operation Desert Shield is now called by President Bush Desert Cloud, who, uh, Desert Storm, I beg your pardon, who made a, he made a statement from the White House a short while ago simply saying the liberation of Kuwait has begun. That is Peter Jennings with ABC News. It's 11 days before the Super Bowl is set to be played. Desert Storm had well and truly kicked off, and things were running hot in the minds of Americans. Underlying everyone's thoughts as the game approached was a fear of retaliation, alongside a fear of what would happen next. This war hadn't ended by the time the game came around, so despite the excitement for these two New York teams facing off against each other, folks were preoccupied. They just sat down and watched the biggest football game of the year, hoping to take their mind off it all. It was January 27th, 1991. It's a hot game right from the jump. The big sombrero was roaring at kickoff. Though starting slow with a score of 3-3, by the beginning of the second quarter, the Bills were ahead 10-3. Then, the Bills' defense showed their brute strength, slamming Giants quarterback Hostetler to the ground in the end zone, resulting in a safety, pushing the score up 12-3, Bills in the lead. It was a confident start, but as halftime approached steadily, the Giants pushed to the other side of the field and scored a touchdown, bringing it to 12 and 10 Bills. Just like that, it's halftime. There's a two-point differential between the teams. They head to their locker rooms as the new kids on the block, the smash hit boy band, took to the stage for the halftime show. But anyone tuning into ABC where the game was being played did not see their performance. ABC instead cut to Peter Jennings at the ABC News desk for an update on the Gulf War. I'm Peter Jennings at ABC News headquarters. We're going to take a few minutes at the beginning of halftime here to get as much up to date as we can with a number of developments in the war today. Remember Near as I can tell, this is the only time the national news has ever cut into the Super Bowl halftime show broadcast. ABC would show the new kids on the block after the game, but it wasn't quite the same. Everyone was snapped back into reality for 15 minutes until Peter Jennings returned the viewers to the game. During the news broadcast, clips of American forces overseas watching the game were aired, crowded in front of a blocky little television in the middle of the night in Saudi Arabia. It began with the national anthem dedicated to the troops in the Persian Gulf, and in the Gulf, they were listening. You see the national anthem at home all the time and you just, it just goes by, but here it's got, it's got meaning behind it. Here in eastern Saudi Arabia, it's Super Bowl Monday. With the time difference, the game began past two in the morning. It was late, it was cold, it didn't matter. Three in the morning or six in the morning. Anytime, it's football is my style. About 75 soldiers watched the game at Camp Jack, a lonely stretch of asphalt on the edge of a large Saudi airbase. No liquor here, so they had soda and popcorn and gas masks. Saddam has a history of hitting us right when we're in the middle of something good. What happens if it happens? Oh, we'll put on our mask and hopefully be able to keep watching if it's not too bad. There'd been concern this week that playing the Super Bowl in the shadow of war seemed frivolous. But if anything, it meant more to the troops here, a glimpse of home before heading on to the front. Judd Rose, ABC News, Eastern Saudi Arabia. 
small reason to smile today. It's a little after 4 o'clock in the morning in Saudi Arabia. That's our brief news report. We'll go back to the game in Tampa just after this. I'm Peter Jennings. Have a good evening. It must have been total whiplash to return to the game after seeing American soldiers at the edge of war abroad. Nevertheless, the game played on. The score was close, only two points between them, which is a tense position to be in in any football game, let alone the Super Bowl. The Giants make the first move and charge down the field, scoring the only points of the third quarter, a touchdown, making the score 17-12 Giants. The fourth quarter starts and the Bills have to score. They kick into high gear and show just how strong of a team they were. They fly down the field and score on a stunning 31-yard rush from the great Thurman Thomas. The Bills are up 19-17, again only two points between them. The Giants make a move, they get close enough for a field goal, and they kick the ball in. 20-19 now. The Giants are leading the Bills by only one point. The Bills get the ball back, push down the field, the clock ticking down bit by bit. They couldn't get in place for a touchdown, but if they scored this field goal, which was worth three points, they would win by two. This was it. The kicker, Scott Norwood, was more than 40 yards from the uprights. That's quite a distance. He lines up the kick and misses. The football wings right and he misses. The Giants win and the Bills lose by one point. It is the closest final score in Super Bowl history. The term wide right has haunted the Bills for decades. To this day, my family can't help but get a pang of heartache every time they see it, and experts never fail to mention the event when the Bills are doing well, like they did this past season. I cannot tell you how many times we saw the wide right clip this year. The pain of it won't go away, I think, until the Buffalo Bills actually win a Super Bowl. I'm hoping for next year. We'll just have to wait and see. It has been 30 years after all. Maybe we should all just move on. The Gulf War came to an end less than a month after the Super Bowl. By the end of February, the coalition of NATO forces had caused serious damage to Iraqi holdings in Kuwait. Iraqi forces left, acknowledged Kuwait as its own sovereignty, but Saddam Hussein remained in power. President Bush got to call the Gulf War a decisive victory for America and her allies, but the ripple effects would be felt for years to come. The Iraq War that was launched in 2003 under this second President Bush is sometimes called the Second Persian Gulf War. A few years later, back in Tampa, the Bucks were on the brink of change. In 1995, the Buccaneers were bought by a new owner who saw immediately that a new stadium was in order, especially considering the increase in popularity for the team and the area. A new stadium would serve the Buccaneers alongside the University of South Florida Bulls. It was called Raymond James Stadium after the company Raymond James Financial, who paid for the deal with a whopping $32.5 million. Construction began in 1997 on land just south of the Big Sombrero, and I mean literally just south. The Big Sombrero held its final game, played by the Tampa Bay Mutiny, the soccer team at the time, on September 13, 1998. Over the following months, the structure was ripped apart piece by piece until, at last, the final section was imploded on April 11, 1999. The whole city gathered to watch it fall, and parts of the destroyed concrete can be found in collections around the state to this very day. When you go to Raymond James today, it's caddy corner to George Steinbrenner Field where the New York Yankees do their spring training. The parking for Steinbrenner Field is a massive green patch. That innocuous strip of land is where the big sombrero once stood. 
That is where Whitney Houston performed her groundbreaking rendition of the national anthem. That is where the soldiers in Desert Storm had their eyes trained in the middle of the night. That is where the infamous Buffalo Bill's wide right occurred. All that contained in what is now a lonely patch of grass, a parking lot, in the shadow of the stadium of a brand new Super Bowl 30 years later. The Buccaneers won the Super Bowl in that stadium just last week. For one night, back in 1991, all of America had their eyes focused on that spot, right here in Florida. Tampa didn't know when they started asking for a stadium all those years ago how important it would become. There's no way they could have. They were just hoping for the pride and economic growth that a major sports team can bring to a city. But for a sports fan like myself, there will always be something special, something undefinable about watching a ball game. When the game stopped last spring, right around this time from the pandemic, I understood we needed to keep people safe, and I didn't let it bring me down. But when late summer rolled around, and I turned on my TV to see a baseball game being played, a real baseball game, I was overwhelmed. As completely goofy as it may sound, I cried. I didn't realize how much I missed it. It's why everyone was watching that game on that night in 1991, not just because it was a sport they loved or because maybe their team was playing, it was because for one night, there was a winner and a loser, a beginning and an end, a set of rules, happiness or failure. You knew what was coming. For a few hours on that night in the middle of war, nothing mattered more than the New York Giants, the Buffalo Bills, and Tampa's own Big Sombrero. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some wonderful stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, I have written so many sports episodes in the last couple years. I've written about the Orlando Magic. I've written about the origins of spring training baseball. I've written about Jackie Robinson. I've written about the Miami Dolphins. Whatever you were looking for, there is a sports story for you in the back catalog. There is a link below to check those out give those episodes a listen. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. All right, next week. Did you know that we have one of the largest populations of bald eagles of any state in the country? Well, I will explore that in depth with you next Monday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go outside. And please, drink more water. Have a good week. <laughs>